Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. To me, the surprising thing, when I go to a traditional grocer like a Vons or an Albertsons or something like that, it still feels like 1987 in there. I w I actually, I was, I was at Target the other day, and there was a wall the size of this table that was only Hidden Ranch. And it's like, what? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Dan Fromer is the founder and editor-in-chief of The New Consumer, an influential publication that covers the intersection of technology and consumer brands, with many of these brands living in the food world. I wanted to have Dan on to talk about some recent grocery store news and trends, as well as find out about how the celebrated tech journalist found his way to scrutinizing the canned food aisle. I hope you enjoy my talk with Dan. Dan Fromer, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm like a fan of your journalism. I, I just love the way the new consumer is is laid out. I love that it's you know behind a paywall and you pay for it and there's a real reason to pay for it and I'll certainly link to it. But you call it the new consumer and you could think, okay, maybe this is a, 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 an outlet that covers uh, buying clothing or buying uh, cars or expensive watches. But it's clear, Dan, that you enjoy food. You enjoy food commerce in a way that's very special. It's funny. I set it up that way uh, a little over four years ago so that I literally could write about anything and expand it to whatever degree I wanted to and, um, you know, and even perhaps hire a staff or something like that. But so far, it's just me. And four years later, I really do uh, just follow my own personal curiosities, which tend to be around food and beverage, fast casual and other yeah. forms of restaurants, the idea of a chef, what is a chef these days? Uh, a lot of it is very food related and, and, and drink and, you know, and coffee and all those other yeah, things. And coffee yeah. and, and CBG and, and grocery stores. And we'll get into it many. I have a lot of questions about specific elements you cover, but in general, we know what you're covering, but what is the new consumer? How do we, like, what are we, what are we buying when yeah. we sub, sub to you? So first of all, newconsumer.com. Yes, yeah. um, and if you sign up from this show, send me a note and I'll do, I'll do something nice for you. Um, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it's uh, it's a media. It's a digital media publication. It's primarily consumed via newsletter and web um, podcast. Coming TK someday. Yeah. Um, let's go. Yeah, enter the cro very crowded space. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's overdue. Um, and it, as I say, it's it's about how and why people spend their time and money. And in some ways, it's a traditional. I don't say traditional. It's because it's written by me in my voice. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's Fromer's uh, guide to. Mm. Has a uh, ring to it somehow. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the Penguin uh, Random House building, former home of Fromer. That's why I was here. I think I applied to work there once, and they thought I was joking or something. They're like, like you're the third uh, cousin of the founder. Yeah. Yeah, nepotism at its best. Yes, Uncle Arthur. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's my guide to the business of uh, of consumer 
products, essentially, and, and services. Um, I'm, my background is as a financial and business journalism uh, journalist, mostly focused on technology, mostly focused on Apple. Vox Media, Forbes, you've worked at a lot of places. I helped start Business Insider. Yep. Ap- apologies for the slideshow. That was me. Um, <laughs> so that's part of it. Part of it is I'm a early web guy. I started designing websites in middle school. I love building things online. I love starting new media brands. I have no desire to work for a sleepy newspaper. I always like making new things online. So, um, and, and then the third part was I'm obsessed with food, beverage, grocery. Like if I have an hour of free time in any city in the world, you will find me in the best grocery store in town. Yep. And I wasn't reading the kinds of articles I wanted to be reading about the brands and businesses that were in these stores that were, you know, I want to read like actually in-depth analysis of Sweet Green and Chipotle and Whole Foods products and all that sort of stuff. And I wasn't finding them. I was finding a lot of um, really boostery, like, oh, these these companies are so creative. Or also like we were in New York, the DTC boom, all these companies were happening. They were either being fawned over as disruptors, which actually many of them were not, um, or there were these snarky, angry stories about stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. Like I wanted in-depth analysis of the the business. And the other half of it is, okay, fine, you can do this as a startup or as an entrepreneur, but how is the consumer, how are the people that are actually buying these mm-hmm. things thinking about that? Um, and so half of my stuff is what you would call like a, a profiles or analysis of business. And the other half is really looking for consumer um, habits, trends, insights, like what are people actually thinking and doing that makes a company viable? Yeah. Um, because so your, audi- yeah. your audience is mostly, you've got like industry people, you got like CMOs and like folks who are like making the big decisions, but you probably have a lot of other just like fans of CPG and fans of new food products who just are interested in your insights into like trend, right? Yeah. I would say it's a, it's a mostly professional, but also a prosumer audience. Prosumer, there yeah. are, um, you know, there are, CEOs of public companies who are my subscribers. Um, there are, you know, senior execs at big tech companies who used to read my stuff back in the day. There's founders of the cool new CPG product brands. There's a lot of investors who are looking for the next big thing. And as you say, there are those people who are just really, really into this stuff yeah. that want, um, you know, in-depth articles about new it's brands. Cool. Uh, I'm a fan. I, thank I, you. I appreciate you, it. You hooked me up with a with a subscription a little while ago, and I've been really digging in, and I got some questions. That Heyday Canning piece was great. I'll get into that oh, as a teaser. But first, uh, from the jump, I just have to ask you about recent news, this Brightland versus Grazza <laughs> beef. You know, I'm laughing too. And, and for disclosure, Andrew Benin is a friend and a former uh, guest on the show, so I'm a bit biased, but I'd love to get your take on this. Yeah, the splatter, the splatter olive oil. Oh, my um, God, right? Uh, okay. There's a few things and this will, this will help me organize my thoughts for, for the newsletter. Um, so first and foremost, um, look, Grasa has done really well. They, uh, you know, and, and for those who don't know, like they're the ones with the bright neon label, uh, with a, like a Steve Jobs dad shoe (laughs) style, uh, you know, Garamond font. Um, you can buy it at Whole Foods. The olive oil is actually really good. I've paid for it with my own money multiple times. Oh, it's, it's, it's beautiful olive oil. Spanish olive oil, hundred percent from a state. Uh, I bring it as gifts sometimes overseas because people like I brought it to Japan last year and people were like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah, dude. (laughs) Thank you. You're burying the lead a little bit, man. Squeeze bottle. Squeeze bottle. Right. And that's kind of the differentiation uh, beyond the quality of the oil, whatever, whatever. And also they've done a good job building a building a brand in in a community. The differentiation is this plastic squeeze bottle. Kind of. Um, and, <laughs> you say kind of. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are other differentiations. Yeah. But um, so uh, 
that's not really a moat, you know, like, first of all, as I think Andrew even told me when I interviewed him, like chefs have been squeezing olive oil out of plastic squeeze bottles as long as chefs have existed with plastic in the world, right? Like this is just a thing that happens in restaurants. Yeah. I was at a very nice restaurant the other night and I watched the chef fill his squeezy olive oil bottle up with a tin of Whole Foods 365 oh, olive amazing. oil. And I was Please. like, oh my God, that's amazing. Wait, is this like a place that people like write about and it's like a, they're using 365? I'm not going to say what it is because I, I love this restaurant and I don't <laughs> want to embarrass the chef, but maybe he ran out of his good stuff that day. Hey, but honestly, it was actually really good. Listen, it happens. Um, it's great. So then, um, so bright, uh, yeah. So th- then there was a, uh, a pop-up, a pizza oil from Brightland. Yeah. So that, Brightland is a, a, a very well-regarded Similarly, direct-to-consumer, um, mostly direct-to-consumer. They have some retail, right? Yeah, retail, yeah. Yeah, so it's both. And, uh, yeah, so they, they launched a pizza oil that had a kind of similar um, aura. It wasn't like a copycat of the bottle. It wasn't a copycat of the label. It was an aura. Yeah, I mean, Grazza. it was a plastic squeeze bottle. Yeah, I guess you're right. I don't think either of those are highly custom orders. I think those are, you know— Kind of off the shelf. Uh, sure, his uh, the Graza color is probably a one off, but like, yeah. um, you know, it was a white bottle with I think a white label with red typography yeah. or something like that. Um, is it a, is it a plastic squeeze bottle? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it like oh we're gonna get Graza? No, this is a single flavor pop up. This is not a threat to your business. Yeah. This is you want a real threat? How about a three six five olive oil in a plastic bottle? That's the threat. Well, I guess my um, read is it without knowing anything is that Andrew, that's like this is just opening the door for that. Well, more broadly, you just don't you don't talk like that. Like 100%. You, you are your brand, no matter how big of a company or how small you are. You are your brand, and the way you conduct yourself professionally reflects on. Everything that you've built, your your team, your investors, your product, your distributors, your retail partners, yeah. like you are in the business of doing business with other people and it's just not a good look yep. and it's, it's, it's rude. Um, and, you know, he apologized and I'm sure he, he, we both know he's like a very, he's a charismatic uh, guy. He, he's, yeah. he's a very energetic yep. and like animated. He, yeah. And he really loves what he's doing and he has a lot of spirit to what he's doing. Yeah. So to, um, to just recap, uh, and I'll link to you a story in the show notes about what happened, but essentially he went on LinkedIn and, and put Brightland on blast and, uh, apologize later. And you can imagine what happened. You talk about the moat, um, being not really there for, for, for Grazza. So in CPG and like in grocery, in this, with this copycat culture, which we see everywhere, look at the better for you soda category, which is seemed to be ripped off and ripped off and ripped off. How do you survive as a small brand? I'm going to just say, I don't think that was a copycat thing. I think copycat culture exists. If you want to look there, Fair enough. I think there's an Australian brand that is like a direct knockoff. I think that's more, I'm sorry, that's and, well, well said. I, I take that back. I think it was the other companies I'm thinking and not right. Also in this world of capitalism, the Australian knockoff is actually not a dumb idea either because <laughs> Graz is not selling in Australia anytime soon. So, all right. Maybe there's actually room in the market for another huh. fun neon olive oil brand in a squeeze bottle. Whatever. I think um, I, I don't love copycat culture. Like, uh, and there are certainly legal, you know, legal frameworks to protect against people knocking off certain parts of your business. But especially in this consumer world, people are going to copy you all the time. It's going to happen. I mean, look at look at what Facebook does with every single successful 
social or yeah. tech feature on any other platform. Yeah. Obviously, it's going to happen in food. Look, one person had to have made the first, what, grape jelly, and everyone can make yeah. grape jelly now. So, oh, that, um, that, that's tough. I mean, it's tough to hear because you feel for the, the, the entrepreneurs and the founders who are, but it, you're just totally. saying that this is just part of the well, so fabric. To of build this. a moat in consumer, you either need some sort of process or technical differentiation, which, or, or sourcing, yeah. or, distribution, some sort of exclusivity, or you just need to build a brand that people love and yep. want to keep coming back to and coming back to. And that's what he was on the path to doing. Uh-huh. I don't know if this derails that. Uh, for some people, I, I was like, mm, I'm not sure how I would feel if I were one of his investors today. Uh, I don't see Whole Foods pulling their deal because of this. It's surely growing their category a little bit. Yeah, so, and, they, and they've, they've, um, they've really committed to Grazza as a brand by giving it national U.S. distribution, not just store by store. Totally. But I think two things are interesting out of this. One is that something this obscure, a guy's LinkedIn post, makes it into a New York Times article. So be careful what you say anywhere. That's about my uncle anything. texting me about it. I'm like, oh, shit, I made it to my <laughs> yeah. uncle, who's a really smart guy, but doesn't really care about CPG. Totally. <laughs> uh, and then just, like, be mindful. What you say reflects of, uh, upon everybody that, yeah. you, that works with you and for you, especially if you're the founder. Yep. Um, yeah. So I must ask you live in Los Angeles and um which is a great city for coffee a great city for for retail for buying food and I'm not just talking about Erewhon which we've talked about a lot in the show where do you like to shop in LA where do you like to go So first we got to talk about coffee uh, Let's go. I assume you've been to Kumquat, but yeah, I have. Yeah, absolutely. Kumquat's a favorite. We live on the east side, yep. and um, what they're doing there is really awesome. They cool. have a really, really dialed-in selection of roasters from all over the world. Um, some cool ones from Korea. They bring stuff in from Japan and um, in Europe, and and just uh, they make really great. Like just their regular coffee is really awesome, and they have seasonal drinks that you'd actually yeah. want to drink like the uh actually this is now a permanent one but the cloudy with a chance of peanuts it's literally a, yeah. a, like an iced latte with peanuts in it and it's delicious i love loquat uh, too you ever been to loquat yeah yeah, yeah it's I, near, my, near my i studio. like what loquat's doing there's so yeah. much great there's so much great coffee happening and i think like day glow like that that model the totally. multi-roaster retail uh is is just the best day glow is awesome in terms of shopping uh we have we have a great selection of stores small and large we are uh huge still fans of cookbook uh it's one of the reasons we moved to la was cookbook and echo park we Mm -hmm. don't live near there anymore but it's a wonderful little small grocery store and differentiated in a couple ways one it sources produce directly from farms so it's better than the stuff you would get even at an organic grocer. It's really, really delicious. Yeah, it's on and par with like Santa Monica Farmer's Market. They, You're going to get the great stuff. It's the same farmers. Yeah. Um, and then they also had a very, very highly opinionated, weird prepared food section. Um, <laughs> it is less weird now. Cookbook was acquired a few years ago by John and Vinny's oh, yeah. um, from the original owners. And so they've, they've kind of dialed back on, on some of the weirdness What's one level. of the weirdo? It was uh, always like a, a, like a charred kale with beans and yeah. and just a lot of acidity and like textures that you would not get at the prepared foods section yeah. in you know even a Whole Foods or an Air One or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Just like very earthy but delicious and super unique stuff. They also had like a pepita, uh, piquillo pepper spread dip type thing that nice. was a little tart and a little sweet and a little a little mola- pa- I think pomegranate molasses. Pomegranate molasses. I feel yeah. Could be in there. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, you know, we would we would. Go there right after the airport. We'd throw our stuff down and run to Cookbook and yeah. get a bunch of stuff. Um, so that's a wonderful store. 
uh, McCall's meat uh, and, and fish just moving moving closer to me now. So I'm excited about that. Really wonderful butcher shop yeah. and seafood shop on the east side. A little ex- a little too expensive for uh, like a, a Monday night uh, yeah. <laughs> fish roast. But <laughs> you got to pay to play for in, in, in these spaces. Yeah. And, and I have to ask you broadly then, you know, you're interested in, in going to these smaller retail spots like Cookbook and you're you're seeing as a as a tech journalist, as a, a financial reporter, you're seeing bigger picture. You're seeing these 30,000 foot view when you walk into these spaces. And I guess what is a place like Cookbook telling you um, and that you're that you're later writing in the new consumer? I mean, the unfortunate answer is that these are not good. These are not businesses that like are making a lot of money. Like these are community resources. Hopefully they are bringing really, really high quality produce and meats and cheeses and all that stuff to the people who live nearby them. Um, but these are, you know, this is, this is hard to scale. It's very low margin. Yeah. It's, uh, um, like all food, like all restaurants, it's, the margins are way lower than you think. This isn't a SaaS business, which is the highest margin possible. Right. Essentially. It's, it's also hard to make the case that like they're places for brand discovery because they just don't have the, the team and the mechanism to be, you know, always meeting with new brands. They do stock, uh, you know, you, you have your fishwife there and, and you cookbook is great because you would actually find a lot of kind of obscure European, maybe old money brands there and not the, just the newest cool brands. Uh, yeah. You'll get like Ortiz, which I think is an old European brand. Yeah. Or even stuff like far beyond that, that I, yeah. I don't even know yeah. the names of, you know, where right, you're like, right, right. wow, I've never seen this before. This is not some hot funded CPG startup. This is like <laughs> what they eat in, in Spain. So I think oh I'll God. try this out. Well, let's, let's talk about retail. Um, I do want to get into categories that you're cynical and that you're optimistic about, but we'll, we'll get to that later. For, let, let's talk brick-and-mortar retail. And I've had Emily Schultz on here. who's the founder of Pop-Up Grocer and Ellie Truesdale, who's a partner at New Fair Partners. And both have answered this question, and I have to ask you, is the grocery store broken? Are there too many SKUs in our modern grocery store landscape for us to actually – get the food that we need without waste and can the price come down potentially with less skews i think the to me the surprising thing and maybe it shouldn't be surprising but it does still surprise me when i go to a traditional grocer like a vons or an albertsons or something like that um it still feels like 1987 in there. Like there's, I, w- I actually, I was, I was at Target the other day and there was a wall the size of this table that was only Hidden Ranch. And it's like, what? Like yeah. either something was messed up that day and they just needed to cover the shelf with yeah. anything, you know? Just like, all Hidden Valley Ranch, like dried products and the bottles and all just that. Just bottles. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two columns, please, or something yeah. like that. So there's just a lot of food that is feels very antiquated, either in its um, you know nutritional value or um, you know or, or other values. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I, there's also huge problems right now where people just still don't have access to nutritious nutritious food, um, whether that is because of where they live and stores just don't carry it or or other things. That's why one of the things that I've been studying very closely is the rise of online grocery. You know, we know online grocery, um, you know, started very much much as a luxury convenience. If you were buying from Instacart five, six years ago, you were paying a, a real premium for it. You really had to, you know, try to to do that. I, I, it was like a extreme luxury for me to order. It was a luxury, but I'll say just push back slightly in that when I was living in Carroll Gardens and we were using Instacart to shop at Fairway and we didn't have a car, 
So maybe yeah, our true. unique opportunity, like experience, was different. But yeah, it was like, it just felt like almost like holy shit, like this is too good to be true because we were paying not that much more. So, but I'm one guy. But I think for generally, it is a luxury to have someone shop for you. It, it certainly, it certainly was. And then COVID made it overnight, 100%. you know, essential infrastructure for a lot of people. And now it's kind of, it's interesting. A lot of businesses went online, like it spiked their e-commerce uh, overnight during during early 2020 and then kind of went right back to where it was online grocery has actually maintained most of the growth it's had since then it is not currently growing it's flat to down on a year-over-year basis but online grocery is hockey stick for a while uh for like a month and then it's pretty flat since then but it's still flat at a much higher rate so one of the things that i as a someone who writes about business and thinks a lot about technology is that when money goes online, it doesn't typically go to the same place as it goes offline. So uh, when the advertising industry became digitized, the money did not go to the websites of the newspapers. It went to primarily Google and and Facebook, Um, also Amazon now and, and the platform. So one of the things I was most curious about was as grocery spending goes online, will that Will it also have a share shift there and create an entire new ecosystem of of grocers um, that either, ser- you know, some of them may serve the whole country. Some of them may have extremely good pricing. Some of them may have very, um, you know, robust sustainability uh, metrics or, you know, focus or something like that. We've seen a lot of that. And by the way, the beauty of the grocery industry, it's trillion dollar a year market. We say just that in word the US. sometimes when I have CPG founders on here and it's like, holy shit, I just yeah. said trillion, but it's right. true. Yeah. So a hundred, so 10% of the market is, uh, is a hundred billion dollars a year. So that's, a, there's a lot of money yeah. flowing that could actually be um, useful for startups. Um, but we've actually seen that the grocery, the legacy grocers are not being disrupted that much. Like yeah. the majority, the vast majority of online grocery shopping is still happening through traditional grocery stores for pickup or delivery. And then that online native grocery channel, which is a lot of new players like the, your Thrive Markets or mm-hmm. um, uh, Umami Cart or Wee or uh, butcher box or something like that. Those are some of those are becoming real, real businesses. You yeah. know, a uh, hundred million or. I or mean, more. you look at like Hungry Root, which is like kind of pivoted away from meal planning to actually offering grocery. Yeah, and I and I am a, a paid subscriber to Hungry Root. I love what they do, and I think it's high quality. And especially for active and busy families, it's actually taking that very wasteful and very antiquated trip to the grocery store out of the equation to get your three to five meals a week. It's pretty nice. What's So there's some, I'm fascinated by Hungry Root because, yeah. and I had a call with their CEO, uh, I don't know, probably a year I've ago. I've invited or him like on that. the show. I think he may be making it one day. Yeah. So. Hungry Root, he basically, I don't want to uh, misquote him, but he basically said, we really do well with people who don't like grocery shopping. Um, yes. And that's actually, uh, you you, uh, you know, we did some research about about grocery shopping recently. And, and actually, most American consumers like grocery shopping. Yes. It's like 80% of people say they like grocery shopping. Um, and normally you think 80, 20, that means, oh yeah, the vast majority of people like grocery shopping. 20% is a lot of people. So if there's a lot of people who don't like grocery shopping and you can provide something meaningfully convenient for them, you have a shot at building a big business in, in that category. And what's interesting about Hungry Root is that it actually does the shopping for you. It, uh, it, it recommends you meals. It shows you the meals. It says, here's what we think you should eat this week. And you say, yeah, yes or no. And it bases it, you know, personalize it based on different cat, you know, different things that you tell it about yourself. Um, 
And then it, it's also smart because on the back end, like if if one ingredient is spiking in price that week, they can actually just shift out another, another one. It, it clearly, there's some kind of market-driven shopping happening. Like, yeah. I mean, there's a real, but I feel like that savings is being passed on, and I'm less cynical about that. I feel like also in terms of sustainability, they're going to actually use their levers, maybe use AI, yeah. who knows, to use that word. We don't need to dwell on AI, <laughs> but you know, to actually save some waste. Very possible. What's interesting, though, and this is where that, um, you know, that that share shift and this thinking about, you know, will online grocery go just to the grocers or to new entrants like this? Um, there's a lot of shopping by algorithm that's happening now. You know, Hungry Root is one example, yep. but even Instacart will recommend items to you. Um, some of that is organic. Some of that, not organic food, but like organic no, recommendations. Work. Some of that is sponsorships. And, um, and and this is one of the things I've been most curious about as someone who's been in the, in the digital media industry and has seen what uh, algorithmic consumption of news content does to people's brains. Like, what will algorithmic consumption of groceries do to our country's, you know, health and fitness. Like should, do grocery stores have a responsibility to recommend healthier food or not healthier food? And that was another thing that we- Super fascinating to think about the algorithm. I want to shift to uh, what Emily Schilt is doing at Pop-Up Grocer and even uh, what's happening at Foxtrot, which is based in Chicago and has locations in LA and Austin, I think. Uh, Dallas, Austin, Dallas. and D.C. Okay, not, not, not LA, LA, not yeah. definitely not New York. Not New York, bummer. No. Now, I want to ask you these smaller curated shopping experiences to maybe supplement a Hungry Root subscription or, of course, that trip to Target or that trip to Albertsons or Meyer. I love grocery shopping for the record. I hope that I didn't imply I don't love it, but I'm one of the 80%. But what do you think about these places where you're going in and you're, it's more of an experience and you're kind of absorbing the brands that maybe are in your world from food media, from taste podcasts, whatever? So I, I'm from Chicago. I'd never been to Foxtrot, or at least I hadn't, I didn't realize I had been to a Foxtrot until last summer when I went to spend several days, um, meeting with the team there and, Mm -hmm. and visiting like almost all their stores for a big story I did on them. And that story is actually free to read on my site. So check it out. Uh, it's, as I wrote the grocery store, every neighborhood deserves or or the convenient, you know, whatever the corner store, every neighborhood deserves. It's a really, really cool concept. I I love them. I've been Um, to one in Chicago. I love it. The, you know, the the cafe is really dialed in. The coffee is Mm -hmm. actually good there. You know, the, the, everything has been very well thought out. It's a, it's a third place where you actually want to spend time. Um, the challenge, you know, and, and we've seen in the last few weeks that, um, you know, the founding CEO has been replaced by a new CEO, Um, who's very, and I, I spoke with her for, for an article as well, who's very focused on um, what seems like basically fixing the business model. And it's really challenging because as a consumer, I would pick Foxtrot over 7-Eleven 11 times out of 10. Yeah. Unless we're in Tokyo, then I'll go to the yeah. 7-Eleven in Tokyo. But um, but my guess is that the the per store unit economics of a 7-Eleven vastly surpass those of a Foxtrot. So um, you know, and some of that is because the user experience of a 7-Eleven isn't very great. Like there's a huge density of shelving and like not, there's nowhere to hang Unless out. Unless you're into and taquitos, which I super am. And I just love having those taquitos. Right it's there. true. Uh, that, that kind of stuff got me through high school. So, yeah. you know, thank you to the, to the, fo- yeah. to the, uh, slurpees, slurpee machines so good, of the world. So good. Um, but that, and that's a trade-off, right? Is figuring out what is going to be, uh, a, a differentiated, awesome, consumer experience, but can also make money. And this is where a lot of those stores uh, have set their expectations too high. You know, Foxtrot has raised so much money, it cannot 
go back to being a boutique neighborhood store. And it does that go to back be... to the margin of the business? The, the the margin is still very low for grocery, and and even they sell alcohol there, which is a higher margin. But is it just because the business is low margin in general? There's a lot of different facets to it. I mean, uh, obviously the the margin of 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 grocery, but also the the mix of cafe business versus yeah. um, versus grocery business, the mix of delivery versus. Um, you know, in-store purchases. That was another thing. Foxtrot ha- has a very robust digital capability, um, but their new CEO is telling me that actually e-commerce is kind of down right now. Like mm. people are back in the shop, which is great because people get to be out and about and back in the shop. But yeah. if you were counting on, uh, you know, your store being also a, a very robust fulfillment center for e-commerce orders, that's trickier. So yeah. it's it's challenging. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know the books of, you know, I haven't seen the books of, I have. I mean, I haven't seen the books of Foxtrot or yeah. Pop-Up Grocer or Erewhon. Um, it feels like Erewhon is very heavily weighted toward prepared food and being a restaurant, and then they have mm-hmm. basically a small Whole Foods in the back with twenty five percent higher pricing on oh, the same yeah, product. Oh yeah, twenty five so, to fifty. I've been to the. Yeah. One, I went to the one. Uh, yeah, mid Hollywood. There's one. Yeah, West Hollywood maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely a lot of prepared food doing that. But as I described, the, the beverage case is to me the most exciting forty feet of retail in the world. Like there's <laughs> nothing better than the. I, I think I counted four hundred and fifty SKUs in the beverage case in Silver Lake. So, mm. um, it's it's cool. I like you know I like going there. I don't I don't do my weekly shopping there. Yeah. Uh, I people never believed me when I said that Whole Foods is the the cheapest of the grocery stores that I would go to when I lived in New York. Yeah, but no. It's it, kind of similar in LA too, unless you're really going to a convention. Since the order. Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods is definitely going to be the best bet for your bang for your buck. Yeah. It'll, in a lot of communities, absolutely. Um, so we'll see, like, can 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 digital provide even better pricing for more people online because they don't have certain aspects of, the, of a grocery store? So far, that hasn't happened. So far, a lot of the the economies of scale or whatever you want to call it from tech has not made its way to the consumer yet. And then we had huge inflation in grocery pricing in the last year. So yeah. I don't know. It's I think people uh, want to actually one. see the stuff before they're buying it with these higher prices. I think it's just like a general like sense that I get that you just want to be in the space versus just hitting the click, 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 click on the cart. Two things. It varies widely by category. There was actually yeah. a really great uh, chart from Kroger the other day, which showed, um, you know, the percentage of people who prefer buying a category online versus offline. Mm. And it was like for paper towels and shelf stable stuff, it was like 80% of people preferred buying it online. Online, yeah. And then fresh fish on the other side of the yeah. spectrum, 80, 20 the other way. Like no one wants to buy fresh fish over the yeah. computer. Good point. Dan. Um, I think you definitely just really depends. Um, <laughs> totally. Let me, let me ask you a two part question. What are you most optimistic about in food retail? Restaurants, and what are you most cynical about? Um, let's start with the cynical thing. I'm not a cynic. Yeah. Uh, I'm a skeptic. Yeah. I'm a realist. Uh, I'm, you know, sarcastic. And um, I like the parts of the question. I appreciate you. Doing yeah, that. yeah. Uh, I, so I'm not a cynic. I am. I'm not uh, super enthusiastic about the explosion of virtual brands in ghost kitchens um, because. I think it's pretty clear that most of the time the food is not very good and uh, and inconsistent and not made with any soul or personality. Is this the Mr. Beast we're talking about, that realm? Uh, yeah, but not just Mr. Beast. Like, I think a lot of those virtual brands are, um, are profit-hungry, like, people who don't actually care about 
what you're eating or how you're eating it. What's a virtual brand, just so our audience knows? I, honestly, I like I don't know. Uh, wasn't there one that was like wing explosion or something, yeah. and then they ran out of wings, so they became thigh explosion? I, uh, there's, yeah. there's so many of them. There's I like, think of it as like these these brands that just happen to pop up in the weirdest locations and they yeah. sell food via seamless. Right. There is Mr. Beast Burger, which is yeah. famous, and and um you know and has been I would say. Well, was successful on paper. I don't know how they're doing recently, but if you look, my one of my favorite things to do uh, on Twitter is look at the reply stream to their customer service uh, account. It's great reporting there. There's a lot of uh, a lot of raw beef uh, being delivered and a lot of grilled cheese sandwiches that are basically uh, not melted, craft single on a piece of you yeah. know, Wonder Bread or something like that. Um, so I, I, it feels to me like if you. There, there's definitely a, an opportunity to like use a kitchen for more than it was intended, and to have more food coming out of it than just the the kit, the restaurant that it was created to be. But I think a lot of it is is done in a very haphazard way. It, I think it's hard to build a culture around cooking food that is not that is just like so random and so it's all literally over the place. like out of a box. It's like a starter kit of a restaurant, and I think it says a lot about the power of the franchise fee and like franchises, uh, you know have training and they actually like want consistency over scale. And totally, there's yeah. a lot of problems with these virtual restaurants because they don't give a shit about quality. Right. As you just said, by the way, sidebar, there's a, there's a YouTube stream of a guy who, uh, works at McDonald's and just posts like uh, point of view videos of him making different things at McDonald's. Oh, Those are kitchen so tools good. that I've never seen in my life. Yeah. Like the fry grabber. Oh, yeah. oh my God, this is an amazing custom piece of oh, TikTok, like, uh, Fast food TikTok, uh, fast food worker TikTok is, yeah. is amazing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not super enthusiastic about it. People are, um, you know, people, a, a lot of Investors see it as a big part of the future of restaurants, and I think that the consumer will ultimately say, no, the quality is not here yeah. for most of this stuff. Some of it will work. And by the way, so what am I excited about? When it works, it's awesome. And by the way, um, this is a, a, a very yuppie thing to say, but like Goop Kitchen is really good. That's Gwyneth Paltrow's Respect. virtual ghost kitchen brand. Right. I'm uh, gluten intolerant, and that she does a gluten-free pizza that you would never know it's from a DoorDash mm -hmm. ghost kitchen. It's really good. Yeah. And so, what makes it good? Is it cauliflower? What are we doing in the crust? I, I haven't looked up the recipes, yeah. but are the nutritional info. But it feels like it's maybe almond flour yeah. or something. It has a nuttiness to it and a, and a um, like a substance to it that yeah. that makes me think it's more than just you know the typical rice flour tapioca yeah. blend. Um, so uh, it's funny, and they've grown very slowly. They only have a few locations, but I really like Goop Kitchen. I would love to go to a Goop Kitchen. I wish they had restaurants and not just ghost kitchen op operations. Yeah. Um, so th that's interesting. To me, though, it always comes back to creative people who really care making artful food that is not overthought or overproduced, but just like the best, this is such a, a cliche, but like the best representation of the ingredients served in a way that is not pretentious. Like I'm not a foams and jellies guy. Like nah. just give me some. You're from Chicago. Come on. <laughs> Although that's where Linnea was invented. So it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, uh, I went to, I went to high school on the same street where, um, 
what's it? Uh, Charlie Trotter's was. Oh, and I would wow. walk by there every evening and see some cool people what waiting. A great waiting. Yeah. Uh, some of our my classmates actually got to eat there because they would like feed the local kids as part of some, you know, they're wow. like, oh, we got a, we got some leftover foie gras. Let's not bad. Feed. I never got to eat there, unfortunately. Let, but... me, let me ask you a couple categories. Can we go yeah, over yeah, some categories? Because I feel like there's a couple categories that I'm I'm really interested in just as a consumer myself. Uh, one is wellness soda. It just seems like Olipop is one brand that always pops in the brain, but there's many there. What are you seeing with the future of this category? Is it oversaturated or on the flip, is it just getting started? Both. Um, it seems like it's a generational thing. Like I stopped drinking sugary soda, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. I'm a I'm a problem LaCroix drinker. Mm-hmm. Like I have like six to eight sparkle sparkling water. Do you like the plum? Day. Do you ever get the I, plum? I do. It reminds me of Capri Sun. Absolutely agree. Yeah. I love the plum. That's my guy right Big now. Big fan of, of beach plum. Yeah. Uh, it's an afternoon flavor. I have morning <laughs> flavors and, and evening flavors. I think too. you're going more like you're on like yellow for mornings. Uh, uh, apricot and, and pomplamousse are morning flavors mornings to me. For you. Um, passion fruit at nighttime. Like that, Dan. Um, Good choices. Tangerine afternoon. Anyway. Um, so I, obviously people, we did a survey recently. The number one thing people want to eat less of is sugar. Um, and so there's definitely a, a, a huge march away from sugar. So a lot of these newer categories are either no sugar or very low sugar, or sometimes it's it's like sketchy fake sugar that, um, you know, some people are, are down to drink and other people are not. But the, the you know, the, the, the grocers who are ultimately the ones distributing and selling the stuff want differentiation. They have communicated to brands that they must have some sort of, quote unquote, scare quotes, functional benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, you could argue that caffeine, which is a drug, is a functional benefit. 100%. Wakes you up. But, the, you know, now it's like probiotics, um, prebiotics. Some of that is because certain elements are shelf stable more than others. So Interesting. So that's like the actual math there. It's, I, it's not just like I think good so. for you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But some of them, you know, they have all kinds of stuff in them. And, and by the way, this is not also this is not super new. Remember the old blue bottle uh, ginseng lemon iced tea from from Arizona iced yeah. tea back in the 90s? Yeah. Like that was functional beverage. Yeah, I guess. Josta. Um, this this, this that was the first energy drink from the 90s. Oh, nice. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, I. I, I I find some of them to be delicious. I actually really love the poppy raspberry rose flavor. Yeah. I think it's great. I had an uh, some of the Olipop stuff just doesn't work for me. And I think the what I'm told is like, yeah, kids just think that tastes normal, you know? Um, hmm. But I had one the other night that was like a banana cream. That's a new one. <laughs> it yeah, was crazy. Bana- banana's good. Yeah. I, that's a new release for them. It was crazy. Let's move on to the bar, the meal replacement bars, or just like that 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 area is always of interest, I think, to our listeners because we're all busy and we need uh, something to hold us over. And it's like, am I going, I'm going to a bar. Yeah. What are you seeing in that space? I had, uh, I had a kind bar phase, like everyone, yeah. I think, especially when I was traveling a lot. The frozen kind bar is way better than it should be. I don't know if you've ever tried <laughs> no, that. No, I haven't. It's like basically not ice cream, but kind of ice cream. Cool. Um, I don't eat bars anymore. I think it's because I, uh, have like an obnoxious, um, like I prioritize cooking and so I just cook a lot. So I don't seek out bars, but I was just thinking, what happened to that savory bar company? Was it called slow up or something like that? Sounds right. It was a little, it was a little tricky because you had to refrigerate it, but I always I want more savory stuff in the world. I think so. I think the the switch to savory and bitter is something that's interesting in the taste of us. Totally, so. yeah. Um, okay, the last category is plant based meat. I feel like with all the VC money and all the I mean publicly traded money going I mean going into this category and seeming like it kind of is like 
burned on entry. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these brands are, you know, not really doing it on Wall Street as as they have promised. Um, and also for us, like we've all had the Burger King. Uh, meatless burger, and and maybe we had it once, but I don't think we've had it three times. What do you think about that category? Yeah, the narrative is definitely in the toilet right now. Yeah, um, bad news for those guys. So two things. One is in our survey work, um, the the consumer interest in plant based alternative meats is has not collapsed and is actually up o- over the last year among certain age groups. Now those are surveys, so who knows? Like we'll we'll see what happens, but. Um, I think there's a lot hinging on this kind of next crop that are doing like beyond and, uh, an impossible. We're very focused on kind of like re- replacing the burger, the crumbly meat. Um, there are companies like meaty, which is making a mushroom based steak and a cutlet and that kind of stuff. That's more, uh, higher protein, less, hopefully less processed crap. Um, yeah. it is still fake food. But it is actually based on, you know, an actual mushroom root and not, um, I don't know, whatever else. Stabilizers on stabilizers, yeah. So we'll see. And there's a lot of money that's been invested in media. It's a very risky bet because they're building, you know, a facility to make their own stuff. And and we'll have to see. So far, I've tried it. It's not for me. I love just good chicken and good beef and and good fish. But the key for me is can it eventually, can technology make that stuff so that people can get protein for less money than they would – a, um, you know, and, and, and be able to avoid eating crappy, you know, know, mass, mass, mass production chicken and beef, um, and get sustenance for less money. Cause that's always to me, the promise of where technology can Mm -hmm. actually be really helpful in food is making good things accessible to more people. So we, we don't know about that, but we definitely have seen interest, especially among younger people, if they could save money by switching to meat alternatives. I feel like the, the, the fake meat that bleeds kind of narrative is yeah. is, d- is done. We're, we're good with that. One. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is like all the lab grown meat, like we'll really have to see what that, what that is uh, years away. Yeah. I think maybe there'll be an environmental situation where we have to have lab grown meat and maybe they're the first mover in that situation. And this is where I just don't know. Like, I don't know how screwed are we from a just uh production, like how yeah. much good quote unquote good beef and chicken can we actually make as a industrial yeah. society? Are we capping out on that? And, and, and are we just really going to have to switch to yeah. other things possibly? The plant-based investors hope so in many yeah, ways. That's true. You know what I mean? Um, but other, you know, along those lines, like people just want to eat more vegetables. That's what they yeah. tell me. They just want more good vegetables. And, and so that's great. Let's talk about QSR and chain restaurants. I feel like uh, you are tapped into that world as well, which I think is great about why the new consumer is at must read. I feel you're tapping to many interests of ours, restaurants and shopping and cooking. So what is there a brand or chain that we should know about that you're interested in? Ooh, um, I'm fascinated by, I think Chipotle has, um, everyone here has heard of Chipotle. Yeah. So, I was like, that's um, a name I've heard of. I've not been excited by yeah. Chipotle. So what's sorry. fascinating to me is that Chipotle has orchestrated a turnaround in their business, which is very, very rare that companies can actually do a turnaround the way they have. And if you remember before they had their whole, um, was it E. coli? Like they had some really bad stuff happening. Very for bad a long food time. safety issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were in the business of starting new fast casual restaurants. They had uh, Shop House, which was like mm-hmm. a Southeast Asian concept um, that everyone hated except me. I really liked it. Dude, uh, Nate Appleman was behind that. Yeah. from New York, and, and Shop House was dope. He's a great chef, and he was in, like, head of R&D for Shop House, yeah. I believe. It was, yeah, it was way too salty, but it was great. Uh, and so now they're starting new restaurants again, which I think is cool. Mm. They have a new concept in, in Santa Monica that's, like, kind of, like, dig in. 
uh, or like Goop Kitchen. That's just like, mm. it's funny because it's so straightforward, but it's still very hard to just find like clean, real food that's not too overpriced. That's just like simply made and and conveniently available. It's it's actually still way too hard to find that. Yeah. Um, which is also another thing where I think grocery prepared food. Like if you want to talk about the future of the grocery store, just make us a, a better restaurant inside that grocery store. People are going to buy all kinds of stuff yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so that that's one. Uh, anything that I've had recently. Um, we think about Oof. salad bar restaurants. Or it was an overcrowded uh, market, and now it's gotten less crowded. It seems some have gone Here's away. Here's something weird, and I, I'm going to say this not for its food, but for kind of its business. Uh, one of its interesting business uh, practices. I went to, uh, to. I went finally got to go back to Tokyo at the end of last year, and there's a sweet green knockoff there called Crisp. Mm. Um, and what is interesting about Crisp is not anything about the food they serve. It's like you know, kind of like a B plus sweet green, mm-hmm. maybe B minus. Um, but they actually publish all of their operational data in real time on their website, which is fascinating. Real so time, can, like daily dumps of data. Yes, like you can wow. go uh, on there. You have to read it in Japanese or in Google Translate, but you mm-hmm. can see which stores are doing well against their kind of targets, which uh, menu items are selling in each store. Super fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Radical transparency. Like truly over the top. Yeah. Expensive. It's kind of interesting. That's an interesting quirk uh, about that. I feel like if we we saw that as uh, uh, in America, it would be fascinating for obviously folks like us who write about food, but also yep. consumers, like what's what's hot, what's popping. I mean, right. I'd love to know what's trending um, at certain restaurants like Taco Bell or Sweetgreen. Or I, I would be so curious just so like, am I, am I missing out on a trend right here? Very much so. And obviously investors would love that too. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dan, I saw your piece on Heyday, and I was fascinated because I've, I've also picked up some cans of Heyday canning. Um, I think that's the name of the brand officially. And I was like, wow, this is really new and fresh to me. I, I linked up with the founder, um, and I think she's going to be on the show at some point. What interests you in Heyday? And we're, let's can food, man. What, yeah. That's a pretty big opportunity there for the right brand. Totally. Um, I think it's cool. It's, you know, there there are several things going right there. One is, uh, and for those who don't know, although you've talked about it on previous shows, yeah. it's beans that come in their own sauce. Yeah. Um, and there's like a, uh, I believe, uh, an enchilada sauce or a fajita sauce one. There's um, kimchi sesame. I love that one. There's yep. um, a harissa, uh, harissa uh, one. With chickpeas, really good. Uh, there's a, a coconut curry one. So it's basically, um, you know, uh, depending on your level of ambition, it could be a full meal or it could be part of a meal that's ready for you just to heat up and and eat. Mm-hmm. Um, or you probably don't even need to heat it up. You probably just eat it room temp if Absolutely. you Absolutely. I mean, like, listen, I, I love a good room temp can yeah. food. I, I, I mean, I, I'm a kid of uh, the Midwest as well, and I think SpaghettiOs right out the can. Right Definitely yeah. one of those guys back <laughs> in the day. Chef Boyardee, actually. That's my guy. Yeah. Um, so it, it's well done. The, the, the flavors I've had are are nice. Like it's yeah. good. It tastes good. The beans are good. Um, the, the, the concept of, Hey, we've made uh, a hard part of your dinner or lunch or whatever for you already. Just, you know, pop this thing open is smart. I think it fits where I, you know, if, if I were to, to zoom out on home cooking in general, like we had three, two years where people were putting way more effort than ever before into cooking every day at home because they had nothing else to do. I think, there's still a carryover and that people still want to cook more at home. And, um, especially, you know, in, in economic uncertainty, like a lot of restaurant spending is going to go back to grocery. Um, 
but have higher uh, standards for their own home cooking than they yeah. did before. So if, if Heyday can elevate your your dinner or lunch that you're making for your family at home, I think that's awesome. Um, and to me, as I wrote, like the canned, canned bean section is still one of the few sections of the store that feels very antiquated. Yeah. Uh, it's very private label focused. There's not a lot of flavored beans. There are, there are some other ones. There's a, a dozen cousins. There's obviously been refried beans, um, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time. Amy's has a bunch of those flavors. Um, Somos and some other folks are doing uh, more Mexican flavored uh, bean products. And Goya, but, I'm sure, has a, a bean in sauce, a yeah. skew, I would think, at some point. I would, I would assume they have many, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and And it's an interesting category because it is dominated nationally by Goya and Bushes mm-hmm. and then private label. So there's definitely opportunity. I think it's one of those categories where the the, the grocery buyer at, at Whole Foods or any grocery store is like, oh, cool. Finally, someone's got something for me. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to take you national right away. We got the branding, too, from, you know, the, the Venice. Outline, of, yeah. Yeah, Outline uh, does the, yeah. We got a couple Charleston, great agencies. Charleston-based Outline. They do some really good stuff. Yeah, I, I like those guys. I, I definitely want to reach out to them, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're really cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, talked to them before. Uh, so I'm into it. I think it's cool. I, it's the tricky part to me is, um, it's not super cheap. You know, you think a can of beans is like a dollar or dollar 50. It's, it's four, four fifty or something like that. Um, so the real bargain buyer is going to maybe look a couple times, but for a, you know, healthy protein packed dinner, it's, pretty affordable. Yeah, so plant-based. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're cooking for a few people or or whatever. So it's it's interesting. Um and it, beans are heavy, so they're not the kind of thing you're really going to buy direct to consumer, but it, it is really a grocery play. As a new consumer though, to use your great branding, I love that name of your of your publication. How do I get excited about the canned food aisle? I feel like that's the biggest challenge for anyone, right? Like uh, getting people to go there and think you can actually get healthy food here. That was the beauty of tin fish, right? Like yes. it was so profoundly uncool. And then you see a couple brands pop up yeah. like Scout and Fishwife mm-hmm. and a few others that are- Patagonia. Patagonia, yeah. I love that have like innovative products, great branding, are really good at building community online. Boom. Now you have yeah. something interesting and, you know, you get someone creative to make a t-shirt that says hot girls love tin fish or whatever it is. And, and all of a sudden there's a movement, you know? Um, I don't know if that's going to happen with canned beans so readily. Like it is, it is another kind of uncool product. I think beans, I don't know, maybe people have uh, bean PTSD from uh, <laughs> three years ago. When, where I think a lot of people still have a lot of Rancho Gordo sitting in the, in the pantry. <laughs> yeah. Granted, those take a lot longer to Steve cook. Steve Sando, uh, bless that guy, yeah. man. He, he he really rolled with a lot of demand for that bean club. My God. Totally. Hilarious. I mean, but it's still, this is different because I think, yeah, the Rancho Gordo model is like very cool and like that, but that requires a lot of work. Right. We needed to start planning. cooking those beans yesterday, uh-huh. whereas heyday, you know, okay, in yeah. four minutes we could be eating some some stuff. So I think it's cool. Uh, I love that sort of thing. It's it's grocery. It's a hard business. It's going to be a tough slog, yep. like raising money, getting inventory. Uh, the, I guess the good news is it doesn't spoil very quickly, but it's, it's true. It's going to be tricky. But again, um, a great uh, a great niche that is ready for reinvention. So yeah. I'm excited it's about exciting. Stuff like that. What are you cooking at home? What you're, you've said you've uh, you're, you're you're one of the. You're the driving force of your your home's food and yeah. cooking. What are you what are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm 
I'm not a huge recipe guy. Um, wow. Okay. Shout. Uh, I like that. I um, which is not you know not. What super does that creative. mean? I, I mean, listen, I love that statement, but what does it mean? So I read recipes more for inspiration than for direction. Um, you know, a lot of times I will do it my way, but with kind of the idea. The, the, an example is. Um, we've been making, we've made like probably four times in the last few months, this really great, I don't, I'm guessing Melissa Clark or something from the New York times cooking app of basically just like a sheet pan chicken, but with a, uh, Castle Vetrano olive, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you call it a relish or whatever on top. Mm. I'm sure I'm not cooking it the way I'm supposed to in the recipe, but it is damn good. So do you finish it uh, with the relish or do you cook it with the, the finish it with with, uh, room tamponade with like olive oil, olives, herbs. It's it's so good. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really delicious. Um, you know, I, I try to make food that is, uh, recognizable. That is like, just, I try to buy good, good meats and fish and, um, and serve vegetables. You know, the, one of the nice things about living in LA is really just access to great produce. And, uh, I try not to screw it up. Um, I, uh, I'm gluten intolerant, so it's Mm -hmm. very hard for me to eat in Japanese restaurants Mm -hmm. in uh, sushi, obviously I can eat, but like Chinese restaurants, um, so I do try to cook that stuff as home at home where yeah. I have control over the process and the it's ingredients. It's nice to, yeah, when you can control it. Are you a Bonza guy? Are you in, on Team Bonza? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, mac and cheese, that's the that's the my go-to. The boxes are nice, yeah. That, it's, it's really good, honestly. Yeah. Um, my son loves it, too. He doesn't even have to eat it. He doesn't but, even have to eat it. It's for you, too. Okay, well, that's cool. I, I, like, um, I like to get the insight because, you know, we could definitely be talking as – as like writers of food and, and certainly I know plenty of food writers who don't cook that much and that's totally fine, but it's cool to know that you actually have some skills. I try to, well, I, so I learned from, uh, watching Alton Brown. Like yeah. I, I, I'm not as food sciencey. I'm not like a, a Kenji level, like oh, I'm checking the temperature every two seconds, mm-hmm. but I did try to learn technique in, you know, in cooking and just apply that to whatever is in front of me. I also have uh, an irresponsible spice collection. Like I just buy one, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, <laughs> I love an irresponsible. Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's nice that when you have spices falling on top of you, when you open the drawers. When we moved last year, I had to get rid of a bunch oh, of them. Man. But yeah, it was just like, uh, I, I, so I love trying spices and I have probably 15 vinegars in the fridge right now. Yeah. Just, I love playing with ingredients and, and, um, and seeing what happens. Yeah. Now, uh, you're in New York. Where are you dining out? I have to ask. Where, where, where you used to live here for 18 years, you said, and you moved to L.A. a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, had a really nice meal at Rule of Thirds last night. Nice. Um, going to try to go to King if I can. Mm-hmm. That's like my kind of like, if, especially if I'm by myself, just go have a steak and a cocktail. And Great call. You can't, can't do better than that. Yep. Um, you know what? I love Inday. I, I try to get Inday for lunch at least once a trip. Um not this trip has been very work focused, so yeah. less like dining out. But every time I'm here, you know, we try to go back to Four Horsemen. We love Four Horsemen. I love I love wine bars that serve mm-hmm. simple food, uh, simple done but well. creative and interesting. And yeah, just like the olives and every pork. single thing, like the the, the yeah. tuna there, the the, the carpaccio or the even the salads. There. Stellar like, restaurant. Boom. Um, yeah, great. Dan, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book, what would that be? So I came close to pitching a savory cocktail book at some point. My wow. wife actually wrote out, like, the recipes on our honeymoon. <laughs> 
I love you guys are like murder bees on your We're like at a bar. We're like, let's come up with some savory cocktails. So that's actually plausible. Like the not just the Bloody Mary though. No, 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 no. Like Uh, oh, so not the Bloody Mary. I have the file somewhere. No, not a Bloody Mary. Uh, (laughs) Oh wow. You're you're a Midwest guy. You're not a Bloody Mary fan? Uh I um no. Yeah, fair. Yeah. I don't know. Fair. Yeah. I'm like a a weird wine guy or a or a whiskey. Savory cocktails you were thinking about. Cocktail, yeah. Um you know, I grew up reading a lot of these books where people would uh, start a job and do like a weird job for a year and then write a book about it. Um, and so, you know, if budget were truly unlimited and I could move my family and, and let them have a nice 100. life, I would love to to do heat, but I would love to be like Jiro's intern or something yeah. like that, like really understand um, sushi cooking in, in Tokyo or in Japan or something like that. Uh Probably someone has done that. Maybe. I don't know. Well, for a book. I know, like, there are obviously chefs who've done that. But. Yeah, but, like, the immersive Bill Buford style for Jiro from, like, being super out of the— I mean, I think, like, Rice Noodle Fish, Roads and Kingdoms book totally. in Japan, uh, Matt Golding had covered that. Yeah. I mean, but obviously there's room for more. <laughs> I'd yeah, love to see that. I, it may not be commercially successful, but in terms of, like, how I would love to invest— period of That's time so, in my life, I think that could be really interesting. Dan, I, I hope, I mean, you're an ambitious guy. I hey, well, might. there's probably some uh, some cookbook folks listening to this. Probably. So I think we, we, we definitely have a few tuned in. Dan Fromer, thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 